This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, sitting in for Terry Gross. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. I let you love what I thought it was funny. You came along and moved me, honey. I've changed my mind. This world is fine. Goodness great balls of fire. Kiss the baby. Feels good. Hold me, baby. Well, I want to love you like I love the shit. You're fine. So kind. Got to tell this world that you're mine, 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 mine. I chew my nails and then I twitch on my thumb. I'm real on earth, but it's so it's fun. Come on, baby. It drives me crazy. It's just great balls of fire. We're remembering rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis, who died October 28th at age 87, with excerpts from two interviews from our archives. In the second half of the show, we'll listen back to Terry's interview with Myra Lewis Williams, who was married to Jerry Lee when she was 13. They were cousins. The scandal which followed their marriage ended Jerry Lee's career as a rock and roll superstar, but he later found redemption in performing country music. We'll kick things off with an interview Terry did with Jerry Lee's younger sister, pianist and singer Linda Gale Lewis. Before Jerry Lee Lewis became a star, their family lived in a shack in Faraday, Louisiana. Linda learned to play piano from watching her brother. They started performing together when she was 14 in the early 1960s. They recorded together, and she toured with him for many years in the 60s and 70s before going off on her own. Linda Gale Lewis was on Fresh Air in 2018, along with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Robbie Folks. They had just put out a record together called Wild, Wild, Wild. Here's the opening track featuring Linda Gale Lewis on piano and vocals. I'm the sister of a Linda Gale Lewis, welcome to Fresh Air. Robbie Folks, welcome back to Fresh Air, and congratulations on your album, Wild, Wild, Wild. So, Linda, we just heard a sample of your piano style, which 
is very similar to your brother Jerry Lee Lewis's piano style. But you didn't start playing until you were 30 or 40 or something? I was actually 40. You know, I knew the basic chords on the piano, you know, like for just accompanying myself if I was writing a song or, or just singing a gospel song or a country song or something. But I didn't know how to play rock and roll or boogie woogie because I'd been on the road with my brother. So that wasn't needed in our act. <laughs> when I left his band, it was necessary for me to figure it out. And thank goodness he had shown me a lot of things that I fortunately could remember. What did he show you? He showed me basically this, uh, I call it the Jerry D. Lewis invention, because it's kind of like a Bach invention, only it's for boogie woogie and rock and roll. He came up with this thing for me to play. And he said, if you play this and you start out really slow and then work up to speed, then it will open up everything for you and you'll be able to play Rock and roll and boogie-woogie piano. What about the glissandos where you slide <laughs> down the notes of the piano? That just comes naturally to me. <laughs> I always think it must tear up your hands. It does. <laughs> <laughs> does it? <laughs> okay. Uh, um, you're both from very different backgrounds. So, Linda, let me ask you. Uh, you grew up in a shack in Louisiana. Would you describe the shack for us? Well, it was this uh, gray building that was kind of like holes in it in places and we didn't have a bathroom on the inside we had to bathe in a tin tub out on the porch in the summer or in the kitchen where there's heat in the winter it was tough it was hard living there and it was embarrassing for me when I'd get off the school bus because most of the other kids weren't as poor I, I didn't see any other shacks exactly like that one maybe one or two but still when it's you getting off the bus and it's your shack, it's it's embarrassing. So it was hard for me. But, you know, I was able to leave there pretty early because, you know, my brother got us out of there when I was 10 years old. Well, yeah, because, you know, he became famous as Jerry Lee Lewis. He signed with Sun Records, and people know how that story went. Um, so it must have really profoundly affected your family life when, when there was money coming in and he became famous. Oh, it was wonderful. We went to Memphis. I remember our first trip to Memphis. It was so great. But, of course, the main thing that I remember is that Jerry bought us a new house in town, a nice brick home with everything, bathroom on the inside. <laughs> it was lovely. And he gave us $1,000 to go shopping. My mama had two dresses, one to wear to church and one to wear at home. That's all she had. And we took $1,000 to Doris's dress shop in Faraday, Louisiana, and bought everything they had in our sizes. Everyone in your family made music, right? Well, yes. My mama was a great singer. She was the song leader in our church. And Daddy played guitar, and he played a little bit of piano. So one thing you have in common in terms of your background is I think, you know, you both grew up in musical families, although, Linda, there was a famous person in your family. Well, not just Jerry Lee Lewis. Jimmy Swaggart is your cousin, and he's like the famous televangelist. Uh, a famous televangelist preacher, but he he performed in those shows too, didn't he? Like sing and play? Yes, he did, and he's a wonderful piano player, and he is a wonderful singer, and great he's a singer. great... Yeah, he's a yeah. great singer, and he's a great preacher, and, and uh, he was off of TV for a while because of the scandal, but he's back on now. Right, and the scandal involved a prostitute and pornography. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Although there are some little old ladies that think that he was framed. <laughs> Is that true? I did have a couple of, of people tell me that, yes. <laughs> but you don't think he was framed? 
Well, I think that's far-fetched. Okay. <laughs> I, lo- I love Jimmy, and I wouldn't say anything bad about him, but that'd be a bit far-fetched. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, and did you both grow up singing in church a lot, too? Uh, I did a little bit, yeah. and uh, I did a lot. Yeah. Did you sing a lot of church songs at home, even though you just did a little singing in church, Robbie? You know, um, I'm trying to remember. I did a lot of singing with my family, and I went to. I stopped going to church uh, partly because we were living so far from anything, and uh, and I didn't have transportation. My parents weren't churchgoers, but uh, I think I stopped going to church around uh, age 13, and and they were largely like Methodist churches with uninteresting hymnal singing. They weren't like the the real cool music that Linda was probably. <laughs> Doing. So, Linda, I think your family helped build the church that your family belonged to? Well, they did. You know, it was, uh, it was a holy roller church, so it wasn't so popular. In, in our little town of Faraday, you'd have like a 1,000 people attending the Baptist church and maybe 500 the Methodist and 200 Catholics and about 50 Pentecostals. <laughs> <laughs> and that was your church? And that was our church. Um, so what kind of music was in the church? Oh, it, it was great music, and uh, Robbie would have loved it. You know, he, he'd probably been finding a way to get to church if he'd going to that one. It, it was just, uh, you know, it was wonderful music, upbeat most of the time, not all the time, but it was very um, emotional. Though, I mean, sometimes it was it was frightening and and sad. But when they did those songs like "I'll Fly Away" and stuff like that, it, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'm wondering if your brother and you first got your hands on a piano in church? Because if you were living in a shack, I doubt there was a piano in the shack. Well, my mom and daddy found a way to get my brother a piano when he was eight years old. In the shack? Yeah, and I guess, yeah. In the we shack still, with the holes in it? Uh, we were definitely in the shack with the holes in it. It was at your aunt's house, yeah? <laughs> well, he bu- they bought it from my aunt. Mm-hmm. My aunt Eva had a piano she'd bought for her daughter, Norma Jean. And Norma Jean just wouldn't take the lessons and play the piano, so she said hmm. she just wanted to sell it, so... She uh, sold it to my mom and daddy, and daddy moved that piano downstairs by himself. No. Because they lived up over their cafe that they had. They had a cafe, and they lived up over it, so it was upstairs. And, and Jerry told me, he said, I can't believe how daddy could move that piano down those stairs by mm. himself. It was an upright piano. My brother still has it. Wow. So you sing great harmonies together. Did that come naturally? I mean, uh, Linda, you certainly sang a lot of harmonies uh, with your brother in well, the past. Well, I have. You know, my brother's a great singer, and, and so is Robbie. So it reminds me of doing duets with my brother. And it wasn't hard for me to sing with Robbie. I, I love singing with him. Can I ask you to do a song that you also do on the new album, Wild, Wild, Wild? I'm going to ask you to sing your duet of... On the Jericho Road, and um, did you both know the song before you decided to do it together? Well, I was sitting at a Burger King in Tromsø, Norway. <laughs> I got an email from Robbie saying, "Well, we need to do some gospel," and I suggested Jericho Road, didn't I, Robbie? You did, yeah. And you directed me to uh, to Jerry's uh, insane performance of it <laughs> with a uh, yeah unbelievable piano solo. Yeah. And then I immediately told you, "I'm not playing that." piano solo then I made you play the guitar solo you made me play the guitar <laughs> and uh for not really worse, but I asked you to <laughs> this is what we came up with <laughs> as you travel along on the Jericho Road there's room for just two brother don't carry alone just bring it to Christ your sins I'll confess 
on the Jericho Road. Your heart he will bless. On the Jericho Road. On the Jericho Road. There's room for just two. There's room for just two. No more or no less. No more or no less. Only Jesus and you. Just Jesus and you. Oh, each burden he'll bear. Each sorrow he'll share. There's never a care. Precious Jesus is there. There's never a care. Precious Jesus is there. Oh, thank you for that. I loved it. Warts and all. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. And and let me reintroduce you. My guests are Robbie Folks, songwriter, singer, guitarist. And Linda Gale Lewis, who's a pianist and singer and sometimes songwriter as well, and also the sister of Jerry Lee Lewis. So we just heard you sing on the Jericho Road, which is a, a very Christian song. And Linda, I think you're still in the church. Uh, well, I'm not exactly in a church. They won't have me. But I am a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you're still deeply a Christian. Yeah, I haven't found one that would agree with everything I do. But, <laughs> but yes, I, I do go to church occasionally, but uh, I don't, like, belong to a church. But, but I'm, I'm very spiritual, and, and I love the Lord. And, Robbie, as I remember from our last interview, you completely moved away from the church. Yeah, I'm an atheist, which uh, I haven't really discussed with Linda until this moment. But uh, <laughs> there it is. Are you okay with that, Linda? I already knew that he was an atheist. Uh, I read it on one of those social media things. (laughs) (laughs) Your secret is long out. (laughs) Yeah, cat's out of the bag. But you still love singing those songs. I really do. I mean, they're great songs. I mean, songs about belief. You know, that's what makes a love song great because you believe it when you sing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, songs about transcendental belief, uh, to me, are are all the more powerful. Um, Linda, what did your parents think, being such church people, when Jerry Lee Lewis, along with you, his younger sister, started performing these like wild songs, totally secular, kind of blasphemous probably w- within your church. Um, so how, how did that go over in the family? Now, granted, he was bringing in a lot of money and got the family out of poverty. So I'm sure they like that. But there was a lot that went along with that. Well, you know, my parents defended my brother always, and, and they didn't necessarily agree with his theory, which is that he was doing the devil's music. They didn't really feel that like he did. and But the, the people in the church weren't happy with us. I mean, Mama would still go, and she'd take me with her a lot of times, and people weren't all that nice to us in the church anymore. But uh, but Jerry feels like, you know, he used to feel like that was the devil's music. I don't know if he feels that way so much now. I think he's mellowed on that. Um, did you ever feel like you were going to go to hell because of the music you were playing or the life you were living? I never felt that way. Even when you were young and... Well, when I was young, I was scared to death. Of, I mean, they, of, of hell? Uh, of, yeah, of hell. I mean, those preachers would preach those sermons and would scare you to death. Sure, but then you're going from that to, I mean, you were married at the age of 14. You, I mean, you were drinking, you were on the road with your brother. I mean, that is not like what would be defined as the righteous life, um, if you want. Do you know what I'm saying? I was pretty crazy as a kid. Yeah, that's what I I'm admit saying. that. <laughs> so yes, I was. In those early days of being wild, as in Wild, 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 the album title. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> did, did you worry about hell? Did you worry about, you know, not being redeemed? Maybe a little bit when I wasn't drinking Wild Turkey and 7-Up. <laughs> 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 and 
haven't had a chance to think about it. But yes, I probably did worry about it. But I've just always felt like that Jesus forgives us of our sins because that's what the Bible says. And a lot of people miss that. and They have all these ideas about what you can do and you can't do. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be performing with your brother when you were in your early teens. It was wonderful. It was absolutely great. I wanted so much to go on the road with him. And, of course, I was in school. But then I met this guy and fell in love with him, and we got married. But it only lasted for, I think, a few months. It wasn't long at all. And I ended up with a divorce. And then I said, well, I can't really go back to school because I've just gone through this divorce. So how about me going on the road with you, Jerry? (laughs) (laughs) And he took me on the road. Um, so you were, you met Elvis Presley, you probably met all the rockabilly performers and a lot of other now famous performers too. It's been absolutely wonderful. I mean, uh, Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Fats Domino was a lovely man. It was, it was so great being around all those guys. So we've, we've heard you do duets together and, um, you've also both recorded a lot solo. Um, what are some of the pleasures of singing harmony? I feel it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's like the pleasure, as I was saying earlier, of uh, dancing with an excellent partner, and it's like the pleasure of, of falling down on a nice, soft bed, you know. And when you sing with a great uh, partner, um, uh, like I get to do with Linda, it really is uh, almost like falling into a bed, and it's uh, thoughtlessness and comfort and the good feeling. And, and I wish I could be more scientific about it. It's a, it's a good feeling. I really I enjoy harmonizing. I, of course, I did with my brother and with my sister, Frankie Jean. Uh-huh. And then now my son and my daughter sing with me. And that's a lot of fun when we do that. Oh, that's great. Woman plus man is an especially potent thing, though, at least in country music, don't you think? Oh, oh, yes, of course. And the thing that uh, mostly that I would do with my kids would be like gospel or folk music or something. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the country songs with a man and a woman singing a duet, uh, I think it's really great. It has been so great to have you both here. Thank you for being so generous playing your music for us. I really loved hearing it. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you, thank Terry. You. It's a great you pleasure. Thank you so much. Pianist and singer Linda Gale Lewis, the younger sister of Jerry Lee Lewis. She spoke with Terry Gross in 2018, along with songwriter, singer, and guitarist Robbie Folks. The record they put out together is called Wild, Wild, Wild. Linda Gale Lewis toured with her brother Jerry Lee in the 60s and 70s. Here's a duet from a record they put out in 1969. The name of the album is Together. The song is called Secret Places. other all these years we've lived with constant shame and fear but But we'll we'll go on and live our love tonight in secret places secret places hidden faces that's all We 
Coming up in the second half of our show, an interview with Myra Lewis-Williams, who married Jerry Lee Lewis when she was just 13. The scandal which followed ended his career as a rock and roll superstar. Myra's memoir, titled Great Balls of Fire, became the basis of the movie of the same name. She didn't think much of the movie. And music critic Ken Tucker has an appreciation of Jerry Lee's turn to country music. That's coming up after a break. I'm David B. and Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. We're remembering rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis today with interviews from our archive. Lewis was 87 when he died on October 28th. With his huge hits, Whole lot of Shakin' Going On and Great Balls of Fire, he was the major radio rival to Elvis Presley. But in 1958, when Jerry Lee married his second cousin, 13-year-old Myra Brown, his career was destroyed by the resultant scandal. Myra divorced Jerry Lee in 1971 and went on to a career in real estate in Atlanta, Georgia. In 1989, Terry interviewed Myra Brown Lewis, who is now known as Myra Lewis Williams. The film Great Balls of Fire, starring Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee, had just come out. It was based on Myra's memoir of the same name. In 2016, Myra published a second memoir titled The Spark That Survived. She told Terry that she didn't think much of the movie. When I walked in and I started watching this movie, which I put off about as long as I could, and my family drug me there, they said, you've got to go with us and see this. What I sat down and saw was a lightweight musical comedy. It was very entertaining, and it was very cute. And it does try to tell you a lot of information. But it is a year and a half in our life, and my book covered 30 years. And there are a lot of things that are factual in as much as far as they go, but it's almost like you have to know what happened before and after to understand the reasoning behind what the person did. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your story as you actually lived it. How did you first meet Jerry Lee Lewis? Terry, I met Jerry by way of my father bringing him to Memphis. My father had been uh, injured on the job. And he went to Louisiana looking for his first cousin, Jerry Lee Lewis, who he had not met. But he did know that he played um, piano and sang. And my father had been in the band with his brothers, you know, when he was a kid. And he wanted to form a band, so he went and found Jerry, brought him to Memphis. And when Jerry walked into our house, I was a 12-year-old kid sitting at the kitchen table doing my math homework. Ponytail and uh, crinoline and poodle skirt and all this. And I really didn't even know who Jerry was or what he was. Your marriage to him became a scandal because uh, you were 13 and he was 22 and you were second cousins. Did that seem unusual to you at the time? Your age and, and marrying as second cousins? It did to me. You've got to remember, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, the suburbs of the city. Jerry grew up on a farm in Louisiana. Where he came from, it was not unusual, but when, when Jerry decided that he wanted to marry me, I argued with him that I was too young, and he argued back that I wasn't. So I was, I was very aware of the age that, uh, that it was entirely too young. Now, I think his sister had married when she was 12. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so it really wasn't that unusual in his family? It wasn't unusual. His, his mother had married 
um, I think when she was 16. Of course, my mother married when she was 16, but they had left that part of the country, and I had not been raised in that environment. So it was, you know, it was way out of the ordinary for me. But in Jerry's family, it was still happening. How did you get married since you were underage? Well, Jerry went to the courthouse in Mississippi. He took a girl that posed as me. She signed uh, the certificate and said that she was Myra Gale Brown, and they put on there that she was 22 years old. And they did not question her, of course, and you had a three-day waiting period, I believe, at that time. And Jerry came back from this trip to... um, my house, called me outside in the car and said, sit down, I want to tell you something. I want to show you something. And he pulled out the marriage license. And when I, when I first saw it, I, I thought I, we had gotten married. I could not understand how a person could be married and not know it. And when he said, no, we're going to get married. And that's when I argued with him and said, Jerry, I am too young for this. And he said, no, you're not. My mother married young and your mother married young. And I'm making plenty of money, and everything will be okay. And that's the point where I jumped out of the car and slammed the door and ran off. And he came after me, and he caught me, and he whirled me around, and he said, Myra, I love you, and I want to marry you. And I said, well, I love you too, Jerry, but I don't want to marry you right now. I'm too young. And he said, well, it's now or never. And, of course, you could almost say the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You were in what grade when you got married? The eighth did, did you drop out after you were married? Terry, in 1958, there was a law that said you could not attend school if you were married, which was there to discourage young marriages, but all in essence it discouraged was an education. So, of course, I dropped out because I had to, but I would have myself anyway because, of course, Jerry wanted me to be with him. He wanted me going on the road with him. Um, you know, I'm thinking about what it must have been like to be married... You were 13 and he was 22. But not only to be married, to be married to this, like, super libidinous husband, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, this is, your, your, your husband was someone who was singing the most uh, kind of wild, sexy lyrics, you know. And he, he really had a very kind of sexually charged persona as, as a performer. Did you feel at all physically or mentally prepared for, for a, a marital sexual relationship? No, I was not prepared for anything. I had no idea what was expected of me. I had no idea what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to do it. I did not grow up and get married. I got married and grew up. And to me, it was the most natural thing in the world and the most normal, although I did realize that there was no one else on the face of the earth that was living life the same way I was living it. Did you find sexuality normal or disturbing when you were that young? I did not find it disturbing. I don't know what I found it. I found it my obligation more than anything else. Uh I was very um, unknowledgeable about anything. As a matter of fact, I believe Jerry knew I was pregnant before I did. I I had no idea. I had no idea why I was was sick. You are really a classic example of going from uh, living in your parents' house to living in your husband's house and going from having parents as the authority figures to having husband as authority figure without having any any time as an independent person. And and the impression I got is that Jerry Lee Lewis really was an authority figure in the home and that he tried to control you in many ways. You say that he tried to choose the clothes you wore, the books you read, told you not to wear makeup, 
chose the records that you could listen to. And I was really curious what records he didn't want you to listen to. <laughs> if they had his name on them, I could listen to them. Anything and else? And if they didn't, I was not supposed no. to be listening. <laughs> <laughs> did, it ever seem, like, did it ever seem really hypocritical to you that, that here was this wild guy whose behavior really knew no bounds, but for you, his wife, he, he would draw the line and you know, make you toe the line. It's called a double standard. Tale. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, were, you, were you aware of it being that way? Did you ever object to it when no. you were 12? Or did you just accept, well, that must be the way things are? No, I accepted it at that age. You see, I, I let Jerry raise me. I let him tell me what I was supposed to think and what I was supposed to believe. First off, I didn't have anyone else to tell me. And I had to grow up, so I had to think something. And in the Deep South, you've got to remember, it's, a wife was almost a possession. To, a, to her husband. My grandmother called her husband Mr. Now that's, that's quite a time ago, but still that can almost show you how women were very subservient positioned to their husbands. So it was not strange to me. I, I believed everything he told me. He spoon-fed me life in little bitty sips, and I accepted it and sought no other opinion, never for a moment thought of disobeying him or not agreeing with him until I started growing up. And then I said, wait a second. Somehow all this can't be right. There's an entire world out there that's not going to agree with this. Mm -hmm. And when I started thinking on my own, I realized that there was, there was more to life than what I was getting. Myra Lewis-Williams speaking to Terry Gross in 1989. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. Well, let, let's let's describe the story a little bit. What what happened was, you, as as you said, you went with Jerry Lee Lewis uh, on tour to England. It was his first performances there. There was a big uh, press conference at at the airport. I, I think it was. We arrived in London, and mm. the press was there to meet and greet Jerry and right. take photographs. And one reporter asked who you were, and you said that you were Jerry Lewis's wife, and he asked you your age. He asked my age, and I decided. Jerry had talked about me telling people that I was older, and he was trying to tell people that I was older anyway. And instead of being 13, I told him I was 15. I thought, well, that'll make a whole lot of difference. <laughs> and um, the next day it came out in the press that Jerry, it said, Jerry Lewis is here with his child bride, Myra, who is 15 years old. And this was an incredible scandal. It was bad enough right then. Then the next day it came out, it said, Jerry Lee Lewis is here with his child bride, Myra, who is really 13 and is his second cousin. And then on the third and the last day, it came out that Jerry Lee Lewis is here with his child bride, Myra, 13 years old, his second cousin, and he is not legally divorced from his second wife. And then we went home. <laughs> we were asked to leave the country. That was the end. Did you feel like he was pretty well blacklisted after the story broke? Oh, he was. There's no doubt about it. It was for 10 years, Jerry's records were held off the air. Uh, he could not get a decent concert date. 
there were certain radio stations that would not touch him at all. Sponsors, more than anything else, said, no, you will not play his music. He went from making $10,000 a night to making $200 a night. No, when his, when his income plummeted and, and his career kind of stopped dead in its tracks, did he blame you for it because, because of your age, because you'd said something to that reporter? No, Jerry never blamed me. That was one good thing about Jerry. He never pointed the finger and said, this is your fault. If he was ever put on the spot with it, he would put his arm around me and say, I paid millions of dollars for this little girl, but I love her. And he never for a moment blamed me. Did he still play at home even when he wasn't getting uh, good, good, good performance dates? Oh, yes. He played every day. He played two or three times every day. Jerry would also make chords in the middle of the night with his fingers. If his, if his hand was resting on my shoulder, it would be cording and playing. <laughs> you could see him moving, you know, you see his fingers moving. <laughs> <laughs> you were pregnant when you were 15. And um, no, right? my child was born when I was 14. Oh, okay. Okay. And so you, you had a son at the age of 14. And yes. yes. He uh, died at the age of three in, in a drowning accident and in a friend's swimming pool. When that happened, um, did you think God was punishing you? No, I never thought that. Jerry thought God was punishing him. Uh-huh. But I never thought God was punishing either one of us. I just do not believe that God works that way. So, so you say that, that Jerry, though, thought that God was punishing him uh, w- with this death. W- was he afraid that, that, that he would go to hell because of the music that he played and the life that he led? Well, Jerry was raised in a background of a religious background, holiness, Pentecostal religion. It was very strict and very stringent about things that you could not do. And Jerry sat in judgment of himself continuously because he could never get away from the raising and the teaching that he had that, first off, he wasn't supposed to be playing that kind of music. He wasn't supposed to be living the life that he lived. And he was a man who was tormented daily by, by this, his expectations of what he should be doing versus, in reality, what he was doing. So he was, he was tormented by this, and Jerry believed when we lost our son that God was punishing him mm-hmm. for not being what he was supposed to be. Jerry Lewis and his cousin Jimmy Swaggart have always been painted as these really interesting opposites who each have part of the other within them. <laughs> you know, the Jim, Jimmy Swaggart has part of the devil in him, and Jerry Lewis is, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is also, has, you know, has this kind of spiritual drive in him as well, and is always like caught between God and the devil. Um, where, where were you in the middle of all of this? Where you, did, have you been during your life like a, a, a spiritual person, a believer? Uh, yes, Terry, I've always been very... I'm not an extremely religious person, but I believe I'm a very spiritual person. And I've always basically sat at the feet of both of these men and listened to their instructions. Jerry was never living the life that he, could, that he would tell you to live, but there were many years that I lived the life that Jerry told me to live. He wanted me to be good and, and pure and straight and, you know, a, a Christian and everything. And he wanted to have that kind of home. He wanted that environment. Even though he wasn't a part of it, he wanted it there. There were many years, well, our entire married life, for 13 years, 
Jerry did not allow anyone to come in our home and drink. There was never, ever a bottle of liquor brought into our house. Did you go back to school after you left your husband? I was going to school the entire time that I was living with Jerry, off and on, Terry, from... <laughs> the only time I could go to school was when Jerry was gone, because Jerry did not like me going to school. So I would go at night when he wasn't there, or I would go on a weekend when he was gone. I had continuously gone back and tried to get an education. I, I wasn't after any particular designation. I just enjoyed learning things. I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed knowing what happened in different areas. And yes, I ended up going back to school, and I ended up getting my uh, real estate license. I've been in real estate almost 10 years now. Mm -hmm. Do you see Jerry Lee Lewis at all anymore? I saw Jerry about four or five months ago. I saw him at a party that Dennis Quaid had in Memphis, a Thanksgiving party. Mm -hmm. And when I saw him through the crowd, he saw me and I saw him and I started toward him. And when I got close to him, I put my arms out and I hugged him. Myra Lewis-Williams, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Terry. I've enjoyed it. Myra Lewis-Williams, speaking to Terry Gross in 1989. Myra married Jerry Lee Lewis, her second cousin, when she was 13 years old in 1958, and divorced him 13 years later in 1971, and went on to a career in real estate in Atlanta, Georgia. Jerry Lee Lewis died October 28th at age 87. And to continue our remembrance of him, we'll conclude with rock critic Ken Tucker, who has an appreciation of the rock and roller's country music side. This is Fresh Air. Jerry Lee Lewis, who died recently at age 87, was the last of the first generation of rock and roll stars in the 1950s, known for his wild man persona on and off stage. But in the wake of Lewis's passing, rock critic Ken Tucker has been listening to another aspect of Lewis's career, his time as a country music artist, beginning in the late 1960s. Ken believes Lewis's beautiful country ballads very well may be better music than any of his rock and roll hits. I've been the whole world over A lot of places I have seen I've met a million people But still nobody knows Oh, Jerry Lee Yeah, I've been a lot of everything, folks From good to bad To what you see But I'm here to tell the world Nobody knows Oh, Jerry Lee Yeah, I've known about In 1968, Jerry Lee Lewis was at a low point his rock and roll career had stalled after the scandal of his marriage to his underage cousin in the late 1950s. And by the late 60s, his sound was irrelevant to rock music anyway, one of the many ways the Beatles had changed the culture. He was about to lose his contract to Mercury Records when a Nashville producer named Eddie Kilroy made a pitch to his bosses in New York to cut an album of country songs with Lewis. Since they'd all but written off Jerry Lee, Kilroy was allowed to do what he wanted. And what Kilroy and Lewis and producer Jerry Kennedy came up with was this. One by one They're turning out the lights I've been beating that old jukebox 
just to hold you tight Guess it's for the best I just put in my last dime Heard you whisper we'd meet again Another place, another time Chairs are stacked Another Place, Another Time hit number four on the Billboard Country Chart, the first time in a decade that a Lewis song was in any Billboard Top Ten. The album of the same name went to number three, and Lewis's country career was launched. There had always been a lot of country in Jerry Lee. The native of Faraday, Louisiana, had a twang in his voice, and he included a cover of Ray Price's honky-tonk classic Crazy Arms on his first Sun Records rock album in 1958. The fact is, country music suited his rolling, tumbling piano style, and its lyrics suited the roiling emotions he brought to every performance. As far as I'm concerned, you can have whole lot of shaking going on and great balls of fire. This is the Jerry Lee Lewis I like to listen to. The news is out all over town. That you've been seen Out running around I know that I Should leave but then I just can't go Lewis's cover of Hank Williams' classic country song, You Win Again, and I think it's as good as Hank's own recording. Indeed, in the history of country music, I think only Lefty Frizzell and George Jones are better vocalists than Lewis. Country music allowed Lewis to vary his persona, to assume roles that rock and roll rarely allowed. Listen to Jerry Lee singing as a husband, a wayward cheater, but one still very much in love with his wife, expressing rare gratitude on She Still Comes Around to Love What's Left of Me from 1969. I know I'm not a model husband Although I'd like to be But payday nights and painted women They do strange things to me But when the part is over And the good is all she sees Though I let her down She still comes around To love what's left of me Six days Lewis's gifts as an interpreter of lyrics and the casual elegance of his piano playing exert a powerful spell. For a man who wrestled with the idea that his earthly behavior would condemn him to hell, Lewis had an uncanny feeling for spiritual music. Here he takes the hymn called The Great Speckled Bird, which would have been familiar to the country audience as a signature song from Roy Acuff, 
and turns it into a rousing way to end a church service. What a beautiful thought I am thinking Concerning the great speckled bird Remember her name is recorded On the pages of God's holy word Jerry Lee Lewis was a man of immense talent and immense ego. By all accounts, the performer who enjoyed the nickname The Killer lived his life in a selfish way and did many ugly things. But he also sent a lot of beauty out into the world. It's more for that beauty, much of it embedded in his country music, that I hope a lot of people will remember him. Ken Tucker is Fresh Air's rock critic. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Steven Spielberg. His new film, The Fablemans, is semi-autobiographical, based on Spielberg's childhood and teenage years, when he fell in love with movies and began making them. It's also about his family and his parents' divorce. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross, I'm David Cooley.